Hi, welcome to Smile It Gets Worse. I'm your host, Tony P. Before I begin tonight's episode, I would like to thank everybody who left feedback for me on Facebook. I found it useful and insightful. That's why tonight we're going to try a new format. But before we start tonight's episode, I would like to talk about my parents' detective agency just for a few minutes. It is really cool that my my mom was a private detective. And the only remaining artifacts of that era are the badges she and her husband used, which my brother has uh, mounted on a wall plaque. Uh, the We have a copy of their license that they applied for to the state police. And file boxes full of files that are no longer readable. I have reached out to all my family members, and honestly, back then we were young. Nobody really paid attention to what mom was talking about, and I'm sorry to say a lot of those memories are lost. But I'm going to keep digging. As soon as I find out more, I'll let you know. Now, for tonight's episode, we're going to talk about a case that was one for the history books. To do so, we're going to go back to 1984, Newtown, Connecticut. It was a gruesome and shocking crime that thrust the state of Connecticut into the national headlines and ultimately became the first case in the history of Connecticut for somebody to be convicted of murder without a body. So to tell this story properly, I'm going to have to go back in history and give you some background. But before I do that, I want to talk about a gentleman named Richard Crafts, who was an airline pilot, a part-time police officer, a former Marine pilot, and a father of three. But ever since 1986, he's pretty much just been the guy in Connecticut who put his wife through the woodchipper. I know. I couldn't believe it when I heard it. I couldn't believe it when I saw the evidence. I could not believe that anybody could do such a horrible, horrible thing as this man did. But I apologize. This man allegedly did. But... I digress. Let me go back to 1969 when a woman by the name of Hella, that's H-E-L-L-E, Nelson, comes from Denmark. And while she was training to be a flight attendant for Pan Am, she meets Mr. Richard Crafts. At the time, He was somewhat scruffy looking. He was an airline pilot. He wore his dark brown hair in a very unkempt style, but for some reason women found that very appealing. He did not fit the stereotypical image of an airline pilot. But he was a pilot nonetheless. He dated stewardesses. Sorry about that. He dated stewardesses almost exclusively. Sometimes he would tell extravagant stories about his past, which included a role in the CIA. 
So how does one go from being a Marine, a pilot, part-time police officer, a loving father, and a member of the Central Intelligence Agency to someone who would plan the almost perfect crime? And he almost got away with it. So who was Richard Crafts? Well, Richard Crafts was born in New York City on December 20th of 1937. In 1956, he joined the United States Marine Corps. While in the military, he worked towards getting his aviation degrees and became very proficient in flying helicopters. He trained in fixed-wing aircraft, you know, like a Cessna or, in the military, probably a C-130. He quickly became certified as a pilot in the late 1950s. Well, in 1958, he was transferred to Korea and Japan. It's during this time that he flew planes for Air America. If you don't know what Air America was, well... It was an American passenger and cargo airline established in 1946. It was covertly owned and operated by the Central Intelligence Agency from 1950 to 1976. It supplied and supported covert operations in Southeast Asia during the Vietnam War, including providing support for drug smuggling in Laos. Crafts apparently flew a number of clandestine missions in Southeast Asia which included assignments in Laos and Vietnam. Though it's difficult to say with any certainty, it was reported by Dr. Henry Lee that Richard Crass was wounded during a flying mission over Laos. Either way, he remained in the service and the Far East for a number of years, flying for Air America, and he eventually returned to the United States in 1966. As a pilot, he had little trouble finding work, next few years, he flew for a variety of outfits until he finally secured a pilot's job in 1968 with Eastern, which was, at that time, one of America's largest and busiest airlines. For the first time in his life, Richard Crafts was making a comfortable salary. Although he had a very busy schedule, Richard Crafts still found time for the social scenes. That's where he met Hella in 1969. At the time, he was already engaged with somebody else, but Hella, she didn't seem to mind. She continued to see him despite his relationships with other women. They maintained this on-again, off-again relationship for the next few years. It was reported that they frequently fought, sometimes in public, but somehow they always wound up together. Hella's friends didn't really care for Richard. They were suspicious of him. Some openly showed hostility towards him. Most of her friends couldn't understand why Hella, very attractive woman, who could have any man she wanted, was attracted to Richard Crafts. Well, 1975. Hella became pregnant with Crafts' child. And in November of that year, in New Hampshire, the two were married. The following year, the newly married Crafts brought a one-level ranch home in the small town of Newtown, Connecticut. 
Hella had her first child, and over the next few years, she had two more children. Afterward, she returned to her job as a stewardess, and they hired a nanny, Dawn Marie Thomas. She was 19 years old, and it was her job to care for the children. Richard continued his job as an airline pilot, so he was frequently away from home. Together, their income exceeded $125,000 a year. And honestly, today, that's a lot of money. Think about what it was worth back in 1975. Richard managed all the finances, which enabled him to spend a great deal of money on his favorite passion, which was collecting guns. I don't have a problem with him collecting guns. I collect guns. Lots of people collect guns. But we don't run our wife through a wood chipper. In 1984, doctors discovered that Richard had cancer. They gave him only a 2% chance of survival. But Richard, who everybody who meets him described as nice, though a bit of an introvert, didn't appreciate that Hella cared for him during his surgery and his chemotherapy. This ingratitude really turned out to be the least of his shortcomings as a husband and a father. Well, hey, either way, he survived the cancer. There was already trouble in the marriage. A divorce became imminent in the fall of 1986. As it turns out, Hella recently discovered, at least suspected, that her husband had been once again having an affair behind her back. After discovering phone calls from an unknown number, she was about to approach the nanny to see if she had made those calls when she found a receipt for Christmas presents for another woman. Hella decided to hire a private detective, and she hired Detective Keith Mayo, a former police officer. And I can honestly say, without Detective Mayo and his efforts, Richie Crafts probably would have committed the perfect crime. Detective Mayo began surveilling Richard Crafts, following him to work, following him from work. He was able to secure photographic proof that Richard was indeed having an affair. The other woman, another Eastern Airlines flight attendant from Middletown, New Jersey. Her name was Nancy Dodd. Later, during the investigation into his wife's disappearance, Richard nonchalantly admits to the Connecticut State Police that he actually had a second girlfriend, another Eastern flight attendant, and that his job as a pilot presented a lot of nice opportunities to cheat. Having had enough, Hella files for divorce. The lawyer prepares the papers, hands them over to the sheriff, files them in the court, but they would never be served because Richard wasn't having it. Richard although he made appointments with the sheriff to receive the papers, never showed up for his appointments. The two argued about the divorce. Hella had had enough. She files for divorce. Shortly before her disappearance, she expressed a fear for her life to her friends. Her divorce lawyer said that she told her that if anything happened to her, she shouldn't believe it was an accident. 
She also told the lawyer that Richard had a lot of guns in the house and that he'd physically abused her in the past. Despite the fact that Richard was cheating on Hella, she decided to obtain a no-fault divorce, as opposed to charging her husband with adultery. She was concerned for her children, as well as what the community would think. The divorce writ was dated November 11th, but the papers never served. Richard started playing games with the sheriff. Sheriff called him and said, I have papers to serve you, Mr. Crafts. Can we meet someplace? Richard would say, yes, absolutely. Not a problem. He'd never show up. He refused to accept the divorce papers. Testimony and statements would show that Hella and Richard argued about the divorce. Richard didn't want the divorce. He wasn't a fan of paying alimony. He was afraid of what the community would say. And he said that he was concerned he would never see his children. Hella had a flight out the following day. She was going to Germany. Somehow that night, the two stopped arguing reached an agreement that when she came back from Germany, they would discuss the matter and they would reach an amicable agreement. November 18th, 1986, after a trip to Frankfurt, Germany, Hella Crafts returns home. She was given a ride by her friend Gertrude Horvath. They noted that the family's nanny was not home, but Richard was. Hella told her friend, oh great, Richard's home. This ought to be fun. Exited the car and went in her house. That would be the last time that anybody would see Hella Crafts alive. November 19th, Richard woke up nanny Dawn Marie Thomas and his three children. And he drove them to his sister's house. He insisted that Hella had gotten up a half hour early and would meet them there. But she never showed up. Nor did she ever return home. There was a heavy snow that night. And power was out in the house. Richard wanted his children to be warm and safe. Is that really what Richard wanted? Hella doesn't show up for work the next day. Her friends realize this is out of character for her. And they call Richard, who says he doesn't know where she is. Two days go by. Her friends turn to Keith Mayo. He contacts her divorce attorney and explains that Hella is missing. The two go to Newtown Police to file a report of a missing person. Following her disappearance, Richard gave varying reports as to where Hella was. He told the nanny that he didn't know where she was. Then he said that she had gone to visit her sick mother. He told Hella's friends that she was on another flight. Hella's co-workers were immediately suspicious due to the regulations that restrict her from flying again so soon. She needed to have a proper rest period. Then Richard changed his story and said she was in Denmark visiting her sick mother. The lies soon started to crumble when her mother said no such arrangement had been made and that she wasn't sick. 
He then told concerned friends that she was in Florida or the Canary Islands on vacation visiting a friend. Thanksgiving comes. Still no sign of Hella. Richard enjoys the holiday at his sister's house with his children. On December 1, the private investigator, Keith Mayo, reported her missing to the Newtown police. Richard Crafts was known to local law enforcement for his work as a volunteer police officer in Newtown. And in 1986, Richard Crafts was working as a part-time police officer in the nearby town of Southbury. Richard Crafts was working as a part-time police officer in the nearby town of Southbury. According to Keith Mayo, Newtown police initially dismissed his concerns, saying Hella would probably return. Mayo was convinced that Richard Crafts was involved in Hella's disappearance. Unable to persuade local police to investigate, he started his own investigation. He interviewed the nanny. The nanny told him that she observed a blood smear. It wasn't actually on no, that, no, wasn't it? No, fuck. Richard Crafts was working as a part-time police officer in the nearby town of Southbury. <clears throat> According to Mr. Mayo, Newtown police initially dismissed his concerns, saying that Hella would probably return. Mayo was convinced Richard Crafts was involved in Hella's disappearance. But unable to persuade local law enforcement to investigate, Mayo took it upon himself to open an investigation. He interviewed the Crafts nanny. She recalled there was a dark grapefruit-sized stain on the carpet in the master bedroom. It was later missing. She said that the carpet was removed by Mr. Crafts. Mayo brings this information to the Newtown Police Department. Hella's friends also go to the Newtown Police Department. They tell local police, they tell them of Hella's concerns and her dire warning. If I go missing, it wasn't an accident. Investigators decide to take Richard Kraft aside for questioning. Meanwhile, private investigator Mayo, still conducting his own investigation, goes to the Newtown landfill and spends a day digging through piles and piles and piles of trash. Unbelievably, he recovers the two-foot-by-two-foot sections of carpeting that Richard Crafts had removed and dumped. Richard Crafts is approached by a Newtown police officer in the early part of December. There are a lot of people who are suggesting that something could have happened to your wife when that she's missing. Richard, is she missing? Richard gave them the same story he had told others. His wife just simply got up and left on November 19th. With this response, police asked Richard Crafts if he would take a lie detector test, and he agrees. An extensive examination is administered by the Connecticut State Police polygraph examiners. Probably took two, three hours. They asked him questions relative to the disappearance of his wife. Do you know where your wife is? No. Did you kill your wife? No. Did you hire somebody to kill your wife? No. Richard Kraft passes the polygraph test with no deception, according to the polygraph examiners. 
The two examiners told investigators that they were pretty sure the crafts did not know the whereabouts of his wife and suggested that they look in other directions. Crafts admit that he made up the story about Hella going to visit her sick mother. A lot of people asked Richard, eventually, why didn't you tell, why'd you tell all these different stories? Richard's response was, well, first of all, it's nobody's business. Second, I didn't want to earn my dirty laundry out in, in town. And I didn't want anybody to know my wife left me. Richard Kraft was cleared as a possible suspect. By now, the press had gotten wind of the story, and they started to cover it. Missing woman? Was she murdered? Did she leave? What happened to Hella Crafts? At this point, we consider this to be a missing person case, said Newtown Police Chief Louis Marchese. He told the reporters, but Keith Mayo told the same reporter, I don't think she disappeared. Not on her own accord. He also challenged the Newtown police when he said, I'm concerned that they are going after this piecemeal. Pressure was building for tangible results on this case. The Newtown police were being criticized on several fronts, and the state's attorney office wanted jurisdiction handed over to the state police. The investigation received yet another setback when Dr. Henry Lee reported his finding on Mayo's rug samples from the dump. After four hours of backbreaking work carried out on the carpet, none of the stains tested positive for blood. Mayo's dogged pursuit of evidence, however, had another unanticipated result. It focused even more attention on the case, which seemed to be floundering at the hands of the Newtown police. Hella's friends also kept up a nonstop campaign of calling the police for updates on the investigation, and as a result, the state's attorney's office decided that the investigation would be best handled in total by the Connecticut State Police investigators. So the detectives, Western District Major Crimes Unit began to look deeper into Kraft's activities immediately before Hella's disappearance. They pulled his credit card statements. They found phone records for the month prior to November 19th, and on his MasterCard, investigators found several very interesting purchases. On November 13th, Crafts had bought a large-capacity Westinghouse freezer at an appliance store in Danbury. He paid $375 for it and picked it up at the store on November 17th. During the same billing period, detectives noticed that he rented some type of machinery at Darien Rentals, which generated a charge of $900. Police questioned, what piece of equipment costs $900 to rent? I know it's only been 20, 25 minutes for you. For me, it's been several hours trying to get the story straight, trying to present it in a manner which you'll find entertaining and informative. So I'm going to take a break right now. And I'm going to do something I haven't done yet. I'm going to end the podcast here. I'll start again, another episode, part B, will be released on Monday. I sincerely hope you've enjoyed the story. If you want to hear the rest of it, leave me some feedback on Facebook. It's not blackmail, really. It's just me asking for confirmation that 
you really want to hear this story. And I haven't even got to the part where I get involved. So, check back on Monday for part B of episode 8. Richard Crafts and the Woodchipper Murderers. I'm going to do something now that I haven't ever done before. I'm going to end the podcast here. Not the entire podcast, just part one. See, for you, it's been about 20, 25 minutes. It's taken me several hours to record 20, 25 minutes. I think I need a little more practice. Anyhow, what I'm getting at is I've been at this for several hours, and I'm very tired right now, so I'm going to stop here. Before I start telling you things that aren't true, aren't correct, aren't accurate, and I make mistakes, I don't want to do that to you. When I give you a story, I want it to be 100% accurate and true. So, Monday evening, I will release part two of episode eight. We're going to name that episode Christmas Day. In the meantime, thank you for listening. Thank you for the encouragement. I really do appreciate it. Do me a favor, please. If you really want to hear part two, leave me a feedback note on Facebook because if you don't want to hear the rest of the story, then there's no reason to tell it. Don't think of it as blackmail. Think of it as, oh, what's the word I'm looking for here? Incentive. Anyways, listen, seriously, folks, thank you for listening. I got to call it a night and get some rest. I promise this is the last time I'm going to do two-part. No, I'm not promising that. Screw that. Who the hell wants to hear that? No. What I'm going to tell you is the God's honest truth. My clock says it's 4.42 a.m. And I still haven't got this particular story down, edited the way I want it, the way I want it to sound. But I don't want to leave you hanging, so I'm giving you part one. Part two will come, like I said, on Monday. And hopefully that will be a much smoother, cleaner version. I'm learning. It's only my eighth time doing this, so please, please, don't give up on me. Bear with me. Leave me some feedback. I'll talk to you on Monday. <laughs>